Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. It is really good to have every one of you here with me this morning, and uh, we're enjoying uh, some air conditioning in this place, Uh, but whether you're here or whether you're sweltering at the lake somewhere right now or in your basement hoping that's a cooler place, welcome to all of you. Uh, We're 10 days into the summer now, and if my memory serves me correctly, we are right at the time when every parent with school-age kids hears the oft-repeated words at this time, now that the release from the so-called tyranny of school has worn off in 10 days, I'm bored. There's nothing to do, right? Which, of course, in the natural order of things, leads every parent to repeat the long passed down from generation to generation words, you better find something to do or I'll give you something, right? Yeah. Invariably, When all else fails, when the phones and the iPads, video games are off limits, my grandchildren have turned to me of one accord and have said, let's play hide and seek. You count, we'll hide. I count down from 10 and then comes that moment when you finish counting and you shout, ready or not, here I come. Ready or not, here I come. I've been thinking this week that that could actually be a subtitle for the New Testament. Instead, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy. God could have counted down from 10 and then said, ready or not, here I come. And come he did because of his great love for us. But that wasn't the whole story. Jesus came to be the way for us to renew our relationship with God and to teach and to show us what abundant living really is. See, God wants us to flourish in this life. God wants us to be able to love somebody tomorrow that we couldn't love yesterday. God wants us to find that sin less and less has a hold on us, that it's no longer interesting to us, that it doesn't look good to us anymore, because, frankly, it's not. God's desire for us is that we, were, we are able to relate to him more deeply, speak more truly, rejoice more freely, and forgive more freely as well with every passing year. So that by the time we shuffle off of this world, people stop and say, now there was a human being who walked with God. That's what life can be. This is what Jesus longed for. Nothing less. He longed for human beings to thrive because that's the life he lived. But everywhere Jesus went, he saw people whose lives were choked by anger or paralyzed by fear, whose hopes were suffocated by doubt, whose hearts were made small by moral failure. How was he ever going to teach on this in a way that everybody could get it? How is he going to do it in a way that would engage great minds and yet feed all of us the truths in simple and profound ways that we could all understand? Well, he chose a method. The primary method that Jesus chose for teaching us was to tell us stories. In fact, about a third of his words in Scripture are stories, stories in the form of parables. Now, just a quick time out before we dive into parables this summer. These are not fables. Fables differ from parables in that a fable is not a real situation. 
like Aesop's fables, in which animals talk like people in disguise. Obviously not real. Parables are not to be confused with allegories either. In an allegory, the story isn't real, and almost every detail has a meaning. Probably the two best known in Christian circles are Pilgrim's Progress and the Chronicles of Narnia. By contrast, not every detail has meaning in parables. They are simply to support the point. There's, it's a story to support the point that Jesus is trying to make, possibly containing one or even just a couple of basic truths, which of course was the purpose of telling the parable in the first place. Did you know that there's about 30 parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and another 20 that people have kind, coined the phrase mini parables. There are seven in one chapter in Matthew alone. They're designed to make the truth of Jesus' teaching available to everyone. In fact, we get our word parable from the Greek word, a compound word, parabaline. Parabaline is made up of two words. Baleen means to throw. You can kind of see ball in the word. That'll help you remember. means to throw. And para means to come alongside of. So a parable is when Jesus wants to throw alongside his point a story. The idea of the parable is that Jesus would take an occurrence from everyday life, something that everybody in his time was familiar with, and throw it alongside a truth about God or the kingdom of God so that everybody who's hearing would understand what he's talking about. Ever see a poor woman desperately searching for a lost coin or a shepherd desperately searching for a lost sheep, he would say? Then you understand, you know then, about God's heart for lost people. He would just spin stories about corrupt judges and plucky widows, about buried treasures and lazy employees and bad debts and noisy neighbors, and people got it, and they flocked to him. Jesus used these words as pictures to illustrate life in the kingdom. Life illustrated, if you will. That's going to be our series title. It probably won't surprise you to learn that pictures tell a story, and that's just kind of right down the quirky side of me, right? So just to kind of lighten it up and kind of get things going here so you understand, we're going to look at a few pictures that basically on their own tell a story. <laughs> Wet cement, right? Can't you just picture the whole story just looking at that? That one tells a story in itself, right? Can't you see them all just piling the stuff on and then the donkey getting lighter and lighter? Look at this one. Now, you have to look for a second at the windows, <laughs> or lack thereof, right? And this one, another story, right? I think we should have measured before we bought that sofa. And <laughs> speaks for itself. How did I get in this mess, right? A story right there waiting to be told. This one's, <laughs> this one's a story yet to be told. Whatever is in front of them, there's a story about to happen here. And this is my favorite. <laughs> Quirky humor. But just because it's not all about fun and games, this is a signpost in the Ukraine. And it's been changed from a Russian word to a Ukrainian name for the road. So pictures paint a lot of words, don't they? And Jesus was trying to do that in the parables. Jesus wanted everybody to understand the truths he was teaching. 
So he told these colorful, unforgettable, compelling, culturally relevant stories to illustrate what abundant living in the kingdom looks like. For 2,000 years now, these parables have pierced the hardest hearts and shaped the greatest minds and the greatest souls that have walked this earth. We are going to devote ourselves to these parables for the next couple of months, and I'm so excited for us to enter into the absolute treasures that await us there. They're the core of the core of what Jesus taught. He's going to be our teacher, and he's going to stretch our minds, and he's going to pierce our hearts, and he's going to shape our souls so that if you'll sign on for this journey through the summer, by the end of it, I believe you will know God better than you ever had, and you will love him more than you ever have, and you will live more faithfully than you have lived before. Living the dream, so to speak. Do you have recurring dreams? Do you ever have a dream that you're still in school? You walk into a class and you realize today is the final exam, the big test. You haven't studied. You didn't even know there was a test. You're hopelessly unprepared. You haven't got a prayer, right? Have you ever had that dream? Any of you had that dream? Oh my goodness, I've had that. And uh, when we moved to the farm years and years ago now, I drove a school bus for 14 years. And I still wake up in a cold sweat, having dreamed that I forgot to pick up some kids somewhere along the way, and it's minus 40. And then, when I became a pastor, I would dream that I would show up at church on Sunday morning to find out that I was scheduled to speak and I'd forgotten, and I didn't have a thing to say. That's not today. <laughs> My favorite story about this is the story of a guy who's taking a class in university in ornithology. Ornithology is the study of birds. And it's a very difficult class he's in. The prof has a reputation of being extremely difficult. He walks in, the student, for the final, and he thinks he's studied up for it, he's studied hard, he's gone through the textbooks, but there's no paper and pencils. There's no multiple choice questions. Just on the walls, are 20 25 pictures of birds, but only their feet. Not the whole bird, just their feet. 25 pairs of birds' feet in pictures up on the wall. And the professor says, here's your final exam. You must identify these 25 species of birds just by their feet. Well, this kid goes ballistic. He says, this is nuts, this is crazy. Nobody in their right mind can do this. I thought I was prepared, but I can't pass this final. I'm not gonna take it. The prof says, you have to take it. I'm the faculty, you're the student. I decide what the final is going to be on. You have to take it. The kid says, well, I'm not going to. I'm not taking this final. The prof says, you don't take it, I'm gonna flunk you. The kid says, Go ahead then, that's okay, flunk me, this is stupid. The prof says, all right, all right then, you have failed, what's your name? The kid says, he rolls up his pant legs, up to his knees, he takes off his shoes and he says, you tell me. <laughs> when you're a student, it's wise to remember one truth that there is almost always a final coming. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but it's coming, so be prepared. Because you don't want to have to say, if only. 
If only I'd studied, if only I'd remembered, now it's too late. If only I was ready. This is a fundamental truth about human life. And Jesus, the wisest teacher who ever lived, wants to get us to understand this, so he tells a parable. This is the story about a wedding and some bridesmaids. And in this story, they have just one task, just one thing. And I'll read it for you. You can see it on the screen. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, and here's, the, here's how this whole story hinges, right? The bridegroom is delayed, they all become drowsy and fall asleep. But it's dark and their lamps are burning, right? At midnight, they're roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids get up, prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom shows up. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the doors were locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. This is a story about two of the saddest words in the English language. If only. Jesus tells a story about a wedding and some bridesmaids, and in this story they just have one task. That one task is be ready for when the groom comes. In Jesus' day, the pre-wedding prep could go on for days. On the last day, the groom would come to the bride's home, generally to escort the bride to the final wedding ceremony and then the celebration, the, the dancing and so on happens after that. When that event was about to happen, before the groom got there, a friend of the groom would go on ahead. And that's what's going on in Jesus' story. A friend of the groom comes ahead and shouts, look, here he comes, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And everybody gets all excited. It's different now. Now it's the bride who walks down the aisle, right? In our day and age. And the attention is all focused on her. We all use the same word to describe the bride. Everybody says she's radiant. She's radiant. Nobody really notices the groom in weddings. The groom is just a prop, like candles or cake or music. But as we see from this text, guys, it's biblical, it's biblical that the focus be on the groom. There you go. That's the way Jesus tells it. There's a twist, though. The bridegroom is delayed. It's evening, and among the guests waiting are ten young women, the bridesmaids. Each of them has a lamp, and of course, owing to the time of day into the evening, and remember, uh, closer you get to the equator, it's like 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark. Once the groom arrives, the parade to the ceremony and reception begins, and they're supposed to light the way. As the evening wears on, they fall asleep until the shout awakens them. The groom is here. Guests and family rush into the street to greet him. The ten young women arise quickly. They recognize that some time has passed and, and begin to service their lamps, get them ready. The wicks have to be adjusted. The oil inside the lamps needs to be replenished. To their horror, 
Five of the women suddenly realize their lamps are almost out of olive oil, and they have no reserves. In this story, of course, the bridegroom represents Jesus. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming, and they need to be ready. However, this story is not just for people who will be alive when Jesus comes back. It has significance for all of us. It's not just a story that has to wait for completion to be relevant to us. The day is coming, Jesus teaches, when we will see the truth about the whole world and all the confusion and mess that is going to get sorted out and everything will be brought to light and made right. We'll see the truth about your life and mine. This world is not just an endless random sequence of events. It's a story and a story has an ending. Your life is a story, my life is a story, and our stories will have an ending. They will have meaning and significance and moral weight. It's all involved in the return of the groom. In this story, there are people who have oil for their lamp and some who don't. These bridesmaids had just one task, and that was to make sure their lamp was ready. Just have enough oil so they could be part of the celebration. There's lots of lessons for us to learn from this parable. The first is, make sure that you've lived in such a way that when your life is viewed from God's perspective, and one day it surely will be, your life has been lived wisely and well. I can't tell you how many funerals that I've been privileged to be a part of where this becomes the, the, the point of celebration for the person who has passed. They lived their life wisely and well. That means today, you give yourself to that which is worthy. And don't get distracted by that which is meaningless. This is for us today. Thirdly and obviously, <laughs> make sure you're ready. Be prepared. Jesus says the bridegroom was delayed. Nobody knew how long, but then at midnight, there's a shout. The bridegroom is here now. Five bridesmaids take out their little clay flasks and completely replenish their lamps. Foolishly, the other five are not prepared. They have no extra oil, so they ask the wise bridesmaids who have extra oil if they can borrow some of theirs, and they're refused. And on the surface, this just seems like, ew, how come they wouldn't share? There's a point to this. The point is, at this point in time, they don't have any more to share. There are some things in life that cannot be borrowed. A relationship with God cannot be borrowed. It cannot just be borrowed because you were born into a family that followed after God. It cannot be borrowed because you just think you've lived more right than wrong. You cannot borrow a relationship with God from your parents, for your children, for your friends. You must have it for yourself. Character, character cannot be borrowed, not from anyone. You and you alone are responsible for your character. You can't borrow somebody else's character. A life, a life cannot be borrowed. One day you will stand with your life before God. When you wait to get before the throne of God, you will not be able to say to the person behind you, hey, my 20s were pretty messed up. Can I borrow your 20s? Can I have that decade of your life? You can't borrow life from someone else. Jesus is driving home with brutal honesty here the truth that we try to evade. Each of us is responsible to God for the life we live. Each of us. 
There are certain factors we can't control, our genes, who our parents are, but there is a little spark God placed in me, the Bible tells us, that's called will. And I get to choose good or evil. I get to choose to love or hate. I make these choices hundreds of times a day, and they're knitting the very fabric of my soul, and I cannot borrow them from someone else. That's the significance of this non-borrowing or no-borrowing factor. There are things that cannot be borrowed. Your life, your character, your relationship with God. We go through life evading our responsibility for these things. But Jesus relentlessly hammers home this truth. You and you alone, me and me alone, each of us are responsible to prepare. And there's no way any one of us can blame someone else or borrow the relationship at the last moment. And then we come to a very sobering truth. It's possible to wait until it's too late. These bridesmaids discover they cannot borrow someone else's oil. They're desperate. They run out to get some. But it's midnight and no service stations or 7-Elevens are open. And back then, they just had to carry enough oil to see them through. And they discover very sad words. It's too late. While the groom was delayed, it seemed like they had all the time in the world. They could actually just take naps. But the day is coming for every one of us when taking a nap will not be the right response. Jesus is saying, when we see that time is unspeakably precious and relentlessly short, when we get that, then it will move us, it should move us to make decisions now. Or it might be too late. If only I'd known today was the day. Notice that this is not a story about trying to figure out when the groom is returning. Too many believers have acted as if Jesus has said here, try to figure out when the groom will come and then prepare at the last minute. Too many have approached the Bible looking for insider information so we could be on the inside when the end is coming so we could cram for it and be ready. Look at what Jesus says. He does not say try to figure out when the day and the hour are getting close. He says keep watch for you do not know and you will not know and you cannot know the day or the hour of my return. In other words, by being watchful, he means pursue a transformed heart now. A heart that is ready for his return now. Devote yourself to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness he says, do this because the day is coming when everyone will see what really matters. And it's not about trying to figure out when it's going to be. He says, the truth is the groom is and there, oh, that was interesting. And there's many who are utterly unprepared. And the question we wonder is, how did it happen? How come they weren't ready? What kind of, how did they not know this was going to happen? Again, this is where Jesus is so wise. Notice the adjective he uses in this story. The five without oil, the five who are unprepared, are not called the evil bridesmaids or the wicked bridesmaids. What are they called? Foolish. Just foolish. The word foolish comes from the Greek word moros, which is a root word for a very politically incorrect word in these days, moron. Why didn't you bring oil for your lamp? We want to ask them. You know what they would say if we could ask them? 
I'm convinced the same thing that we get from little kids when we ask them why they did stupid things. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's that amazing thing in this story, and this is what I'm so profoundly anxious for all of us to see, because there is deep truth in here about how human lives get wasted. The characters in this story who are not prepared for the return of the groom are not defiant. They're not shaking their fist at God and saying, I don't care about you. I'm going to walk my own way. They don't rebel. They don't even decide. They just drift. They just drift. People get to the end of their one and only life in this world, and if you were to ask them, why didn't you devote yourself to knowing God more? Why didn't you lavish more love on your children? Why didn't you give away generous sums of money? Why didn't you nurture the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave you? Why didn't you take great risks for Christ? Why did you spend your one and only life on this earth running too fast or collapsed in front of a television set or obsessing over security or pleasure or power. Why didn't you prepare for the return of the groom? I don't know. I don't know. At that time, it just won't be appropriate to answer like that. Other things seem to matter to me more in the moment. Not good enough. There's a kind of spiritual complacency that sets, that kind of just sets in on our human hearts if we're not careful. A failure to have an appropriate sense of urgency about what truly matters the most. Now, from this vantage point at death's door, I can see that preparing for the arrival of the groom, pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that's one thing that counted. I don't understand what happened. I just, I don't understand. I just frittered my life away on such stupid, trivial things. I could have been ready if only, if only. Don't live your one and only life in a way that leaves you saying, if only, if only. So in the remainder of this message, I want to talk to you about eliminating the if only factor in your life. I want to ask you as I walk through five different areas of life, I'd like to ask you to consider what behavior in your life left unchecked from here to the grave would leave you with a pile of regret. But I want to get even more specific and practical today and challenge you to start doing it now. How about that we agree to have a no regret summer? First, I want to talk about the area of no regret parenting. Eli was a priest of God. He devoted himself to the people of God. He spent his time in worship and prayer. He taught his protege Samuel to recognize the voice of God. This was Eli. He did all these things faithfully, but he had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas, and they were corrupt. They used the temple to steal the offerings as they came in that were intended for God, and they lined their own pockets with that money. They used their status to exploit and seduce women who came to serve at the temple. Eli knew about it, and he abdicated his parental responsibility. God says, for I'm about to punish the house of Eli forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Eli knew what was going on, we're told, but he did nothing. Why? Maybe it's because... Their descent was so gradual. It was just a gradual shift, a gradual drift. Maybe he was afraid they would reject him as father or as friend, and he just wanted, he thought the relationship was more important than confrontation. Maybe he was preoccupied with his ministry. Maybe he was in denial. 
Imagine the regret that he faced at the end of his life. His two sons are killed in battle, in judgment, frankly, their sin unchecked. And the Ark of the Covenant that reflected, that reflected the very presence of God because of this ended up being stolen by Israel's enemies. And Eli knew he never confronted what he most needed to. Imagine what might happen here if every parent were to say, I'm not going to let that happen. I can't control what my kids will do, but I will pledge before God that I will seek to parent in a no-regret manner, best I can with God's help. Some of you need to resolve now. These words are enough for you to realize there is something in one of my kids that is going off the path. I have I have been either blind or ignored it or I didn't want to deal with it and I've got to confront this now. On the other hand, perhaps there's words of affection that you haven't spoken. Maybe they don't come naturally to you. Maybe you never received them when you were a child. You don't want someday when the groom comes to look back on your life with your child and regret never having spoken the words of affection that frankly they're dying to hear. Some of you need to go after this and speak those words. For some of you, the area of regret is time. You're so spent after work commitments that you have no energy to create memories. Are you creating memories? When's the last time you did something spontaneous and unpredictable with your kids? If you're a parent, will you say, as best I can, I want a no-regret parent through this summer and then, of course, beyond. The next area is the area of Finances, no regret finances. How many of you ever made a financial decision you've regretted? <laughs> Is there anybody who hasn't? I hate these stories where they tell about the investment opportunities like McDonald's or Walmart. And, you know, when it was starting, if you'd invested a thousand bucks, you'd have like $80 million now. Of course, the whole point of that is it's too late now. It's too late now. If you want to read a story about it's too late now, look to Acts 5, I think, Ananias and Sapphira. Read that story. The key issue is think about any way that you use your money. How do you use your money? How will this investment that I'm making today look one day as I'm on death's door, as I'm before the throne? How will this use of my money look to me one day after I die? Because that day will surely come. The groom really is returning. So let me ask you, if the groom were to come back today, or if you were to die today, go into eternity, would you have financial regrets or not? Third area where I want to talk about regret elimination is sin. I believe that one of the strongest, if only, factors someday is going to be attached to sin. So I ask you to look real strongly at this. Are there patterns of sin going on in your life that you have not really faced that if you don't face are going to lead to major regret because the groom really is coming back and your life is really going to slip through your fingers otherwise. The Bible tells the story of Cain, third person on earth, period. He wanted to serve God at some level, but he held back on his offering to God. And he didn't receive the favor that his younger brother Abel got, and he was eaten up by anger. He was destroyed, consumed with envy. This is such a classic text, and it's so relevant to us today. I, when I reread this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is something I should post somewhere. God says to Cain, why are you angry? Sin is crouching at your door. 
It's eager. See, he's personified it here. He's made in this a personal, it's a personal force that's crouching at your door, waiting to grab you, waiting to take you down. What can you do? You must subdue and master it. He doesn't say just ignore it. He doesn't say just pray that some kind of lightning bolt comes down from up in heaven and slays your sin. He doesn't say that. He says, you must subdue and master it. Part of the message that God is saying is you can. It can be done. You are not a helpless victim. This is not hopelessness. You're not consigned to the fate of being defeated by sin. It doesn't have to be that way. Be aware that it's crouching outside your door. But you have the ability with me to defeat it, to not let it take over. You're not consigned to the fate of being decimated and defeated by sin. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to play itself out that way in the movie of your life. Cain, it doesn't have to go this way, but you must choose. Cain doesn't master it. Cain doesn't subdue it. He never deals with his envy, his resentment, his anger, his bitterness, and it ends in violence. He ends up killing his brother. And his comment on all that is, my punishment is greater than I can bear. If only my punishment is greater than I can bear. If only he's hidden from the face of God. And I dare say, we have a hard time understanding that, but I think that is a fate worse than death, to have God hide his face from you. Cain becomes a fugitive and a wanderer. The good news is we are not victims. We're not consigned to this fate of being defeated by sin. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't play out that way if we attach ourselves, if we have relationship with, if we belong to our Lord and Savior. Friends, this is truth, and I don't know how to say it any plainer. The groom is coming back. The day is coming when you and I are going to say, wow, it's now? What was I thinking? Why did I allow that to go on and on and on, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, choking the spiritual life out of me? Why didn't I acknowledge my problem, confess it openly, seek whatever help I needed, and declare war on sin, war right to the very battle, right to the very root in my life? If only. There's a fourth area where you don't want to reach the end of your, your summer and ultimately your life with a major regret factor, risk-taking. Because God calls us in this life to a certain level of adventure and taking risks for his sake, trusting him. Those are the moments when we need to trust, isn't it? A classic case from scripture here are the Israelites. When they were delivered out of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh, they were led across the Red Sea. God called them to trust him. Just trust me. Take risks for me. Go and have the promised land. Yet they balk and refuse because the people we saw in it are of great size and we're like grasshoppers compared to them. The people wail over and over again, oh God, if only we just stayed in Egypt. Now friends, imagine the regret of being delivered from Pharaoh, 
through dry land where the, the sea used to be, being led by a pillar of fire during the night and a pillar of cloud during the day, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and the promised land is just waiting for you on the other side of the river, and you never experience it. You never go into the promised land flowing with milk and honey because you don't trust God. What must the regret factor on that one have looked like? What's God calling on you to risk? Maybe it's a vocational risk into some area where God can use you more. Maybe it's an evangelistic risk, risking your friendship by sharing your faith with someone. Maybe it's a ministry risk. You know, the need around here for you to develop and use your gifts in ministry is growing and will always continue to grow. We need you. The kingdom effort needs you and your gifts. It's the picture that God presented to us that we're all part of one body. I think there's an attitude about summer that creeps into our heads sometimes. Maybe more so in Manitoba because if we're lucky, we actually get a month or two of summer, right? We say the best way for me to get refreshed is to kick back and veg out. Sometimes we legitimately do need rest, but sometimes if we get into that kind of I'm doing nothing mindset, we get to the end of the summer and we haven't really been rejuvenated at all. Maybe our RPMs have gone down a little bit, but there's nothing great going on inside of us, in our spirits. Why not consider risking some kind of spiritually stretching activity this summer? For some of you, you are just about to do that. Some of you are listening to me right now at a camp, and you're just about to do that. You've taken a risk, and you're serving this summer. Can I let you in on a little secret? You're going to be stretched if you say yes. And you're going to come home at the end of your stint, if you're at camp, for instance, and instead of thinking, oh, wow, did I ever give a lot to God? God will have given you so much more back, and you're stretched you're stretched, you've overcome, you've grown. Give some thought this summer to what you can do that will stretch you a bit spiritually. Chances are you won't regress if you're actually thinking about moving forward, right? Real, read great books this summer. If you look at surveys of when people tend to do the most reading, it's always in the summer, obvious reasons. There are vacations and long weekends and a little less stress in the summer, so they read. Can I challenge you to read something substantial this summer that might expand your heart and your soul? How important is reading a good book, a great book? I remember the summer I read Dallas Willard's book, Spirit of the Disciplines, and it taught me how to relate to God when I wasn't in a church setting, it taught me how to kind of do surrender exercises and secret acts of service and little ways to try to build humility into my life. That was a summer blockbuster in my spiritual life. And you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're going to read what this summer? I challenge you to go even to the church library and walk around and ask yourself, what great books am I going to read this summer? If you're wondering where to read from the Bible this summer, I would recommend a fantastic book within the Bible. It's called Proverbs. And I'm doing that myself this summer. It's a great place to do some summer reading. It stretches you. Last area is the area of your relationships. I believe we're called to a no-regret heart for people in our lives. We, like Jesus, need to enter into the world of the people around us, our neighbors. 
and spend enough time with them to get to know them and to show them the love of Jesus and to build authentic relationships of trust, to earn the right, frankly, to talk about something as sensitive as spiritual matters. That doesn't happen overnight. It's an investment of time. And just maybe we've got the most time during the summer to do exactly that, if we're intentional about it. Jesus didn't just talk about his love for the world. He showed his love for the world by being a servant. He served the blind by restoring their sight. He served the lepers by restoring their health. He served the crowd at Capernaum by talking about the kingdom of God. He served the guests at the wedding at Cana by turning water into wine. He served the world ultimately by dying on the cross for our sins. When we serve others as Jesus would, and we sacrifice for, sacrifice for others as Jesus did, we put our love for others into action. There was a Scottish writer and historian in the 19th century named Thomas Carlyle. He married a woman who worked as his secretary named Jane Walsh. Jane Welch, sorry but he was devoted to his writing, so he didn't spend very much time with her at all. <clears throat> at one point, she became ill, and then it turned out that the illness was terminal, but he was too busy writing and he didn't have much time for her, and she died. This is what the writer who I read this week writes. When Jane died, they carried her to the cemetery for the service in pouring rain. Following the funeral, Carlyle went back to his home. He went up the stairs to Jane's room and sat down in the chair next to her bed. He sat there thinking about how little time he had spent with her and wishing so much he had a chance to do it differently, if only. Noticing her diary on a table beside the bed, he picked it up and began to read in it. Suddenly he was shocked. There on one page she had written a single line. This is what she wrote. Yesterday, he spent an hour with me, and it was like heaven. I love him so. Something dawned on him that he had not noticed before. He had been too busy to notice that he meant so much to her. He thought of all the times he had gone about his work without thinking about even noticing her. He turned a page in the diary, and there he noticed some words that broke his heart. This is what she wrote. I listened all day to hear his steps coming down the hall. But now it is too late, and I guess he won't come today. Carlyle read a little more, and then he threw the book down and ran out of the house. Some of his friends found him at her graveside, his face buried, actually buried in the mud, his eyes red from weeping, tears rolling down his cheeks, and he kept repeating over and over again, if only I'd known, if only I'd known, if only I'd known. I'll tell you, friends, I think the saddest words are words like, if only, and too late. Some of you have a relationship, and you need to leave here, and you need to go to that person or call that person and say, I love you. Do you know I love you? Some of you perhaps need to call someone and say, I'm sorry. Or you need to forgive where forgiveness needs to be extended. Friends, whatever it is you need to do, whatever God has been speaking to you while I've been speaking, don't wait. Life and time are unspeakably precious and relentlessly short. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't reach the end of your one and only life in this world at this time and be tormented by those words, if only, if only, if only. So for just a moment, we're going to put those five points on the screen. 
And I want you just to spend a quiet moment here just asking God, is there one of these areas that you would like to speak to me about? About no regrets, about kind of wiping the slate clean, about being intentional, about doing and living the way that you would call on me to live. Just going to let you just be quiet for just a couple of minutes here, and then I'll conclude. Go ahead. desire for us is that when that day comes when we meet with you face to face that there is no regrets that we don't immediately get assailed by all the things we should have, could have, would have done, the things we would have said, the actions we would have taken the love we would have shared I pray Father that you would speak to us about this, perhaps there's just even one of these five areas that you would speak to us about and that it would be our focus for this summer, to change our way, to draw close to you, to learn to live an abundant life. Amen. Last thing, and it's a great thing. Imagine what a great thing it would be if all of us, all of us, could reach the end of our life whenever that will come. The day when we look forward to the coming of the groom arrives and say as best as we can, I really did. I really did the best I could, seeking God's help as best I could, living in such a way as to reach the end of my life and say, I ran the race, I finished the course, no regrets. Do you know God wants that for you? That's why Jesus came. That's why we have his word. That's why the cross. That's why we have his spirit within us. Here's the deal, friends. The groom is coming back. We don't know when, but as sure as you are listening to me in this moment, he is coming back. The groom is coming back. So let's be wise and be ready. I'm going to conclude with a prayer that you'll instantly recognize because it's basically a song. But listen to the words, let it flow over you, and then at the very end, Think about the fact that I didn't tell anybody this was how I was going to conclude. Jaira did not know this. And think about how God has orchestrated this day for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us oil in our lamps. Keep us burning. 
Give us oil in our lamps, we pray. Give us oil in our lamps. Keep us burning. Keep us burning till the break of day. Give us love in our hearts. Keep us sharing. Give us love in our hearts, we pray. Give us love in our hearts. Keep us sharing. Keep us sharing till the break of day. Give us joy in our hearts. Keep us singing. Give us joy in our hearts, we pray. Give us joy in our hearts. Keep us singing. Keep us singing till the break of day. Give us faith in our hearts. Keep us praying. Give us faith in our hearts, we pray. Give us faith in our hearts. Keep us praying. Keep us praying till the break of day. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna to the King. That is our heart and our prayer. May we live up to this in the days ahead, we pray, Heavenly Father. And all agreed and said, Amen. Amen.